The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. All right. Hey, so where we're at in the gospel of Luke is the last couple of weeks, if you remember, Jesus got, man, first off, they said he was working by the power of Satan, right? Which is pretty insulting. Uh, and, and then there's this other group that seemed to be a little bit, uh, let's say a little bit more, um, you know, lukewarm towards Jesus. And they're asking for signs and they're asking for all these different things. And Jesus isn't pleased with them either. And you would think that after all that, you would kind of just let Jesus go on his way because he was pretty straightforward with these guys. And instead, what we see today is as he's journeying towards the cross and ultimately his impending death, he gets an invite. He gets an invite to enjoy some lunch with some Pharisees and some lawyers, right? So look at verse 37 of chapter 11 with me. We're going to work our way through this as Pastor Kevin just read the text this morning. Jesus has been experiencing a lot of opposition from the religious elite. And here we are. Verse 37, while Jesus is speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So Jesus went in and he reclined at table. I don't know about you, but I love getting an invite for lunch or dinner or breakfast. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I just love to be invited to people's homes, uh, apartments, out to dinner, out to lunch, this or that, because I enjoy, I really do enjoy food, and I really enjoy people. And so they're probably some of my favorite things. I, I like to enjoy conversation, and uh, especially, to be honest, right after preaching and teaching, you, you work up an appetite, and then you just kind of want to be, and you just want to spend time with people. So I'm not surprised Jesus wants to go to this meal at all. Notice this, though. You know, we have heard over and over in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus eats with sinners. But he also eats with Pharisees. This is actually his second meal that Luke has recorded where he is definitely dining with the Pharisees. And after, no, no doubt, after some intense teaching, he's worked up an appetite. But it doesn't take long before conflict arises. Have you ever been in an awkward dinner? I have. I've created the awkwardness, uh, and I don't have time to tell you all those stories, and you probably wouldn't want to hear them anyway, but they get right to it. Look at verse 38. It says, the Pharisees were astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. Now, just, just to be clear, the Pharisees aren't like your mom or your grandma, right? Like, go wash up, young man, right? Or young lady. It's, it's not about cleanliness in the way that we would think about it. It's not about hygiene. It's absolutely about like a religious purity. It's about making sure that you do all these things. And I'm not going to get into all the things because as far as I know, there are no Jews in this room. But there would be a line of things that you would do to wash the filth off of you because you just spent time amongst the disgusting world, right? And so you want to make sure that you are pure before you start to eat. Now, just so you know, the Pharisees created this, this sign of you know, ritual or cleanliness and of purity before the Lord. This was not in the Mosaic law except for priests, but they started to add rules to the Bible because that's, well, that's what religious folks do, right? They love to build essentially a hedge of protection around the law, and that's exactly what's happening here. Now, it's pretty obvious that, that hand-washing was important to the Pharisees. They're astonished, right? 
Jesus isn't doing our thing. Why is he not obeying our rules? I thought he was a rabbi. I thought he was, well, yeah, but you know about his mom. You can almost imagine the stories that are happening in that moment. But they're shocked. They're shocked that Jesus won't conform to their rules, to their regulations, which is amazing because he's God in the flesh. And there they are saying, he's, not, he's being a bad boy, right? Well, let's look at how Jesus responds to their shock. Verse 39 says, and the Lord said to them, you wonder what his tone is. I do anyway. I, I don't know. I'm not going to try to impress it in there, but I'm pretty sure it's, it's, you could hear a pin drop, right? Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools. There's just no other way to read that, Right? Did, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? It's rhetorical. But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. <laughs> Welcome to dinner, Jesus. Pharisees deployed a litany of laws to separate themselves from the people of the world in an effort to maintain their purity and their righteousness in throughout this disgusting culture that they were forced to live in. Pharisees basically believed that they were good and clean before the Lord. So, so they looked down on everybody that was around them confidently of their own sins being clean because they just washed their hands and, and convinced you're not clean because you did not do this religious thing. But I want you to know, the heart of this whole text is Jesus is pointing out really hypocrisy. It's really the whole point of what Jesus has gone at. Now, he lays it out a lot of different ways. But the heart of the Pharisees' sin was hypocrisy. They presented an external picture that did not have a, a, a matching to an internal reality. Right? So, so they did all these things, and everybody said, ooh, look at them. They washed their hands. But inside... They're just full of greed. Yeah, they give their little tithes and they give their little offerings as we're going to hear in a moment, but they're not giving it from a place of, of worship. And, and I think that's the, let's say that's the main beacon we want to look at. This is hardly a new problem, by the way, right? The, the Old Testament prophets had, had been continually preaching about Israel's reliance, okay, upon human rules and religious rituals and just saying, this does not please God. Over and over and over, the, the prophets were speaking on behalf of God and saying, all your little religious things that you do are worthless if they don't match your heart. Okay? And so we see that in Matthew 15, 7 through 9. It's, it's a very similar situation. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen as I read. Jesus said, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you when he said this? Now listen to what he's saying to the to the Pharisees of that time. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Get what he's saying. He's saying, your lips don't match your heart. It's worthless. You're fooling everybody around you. You're not fooling God. And, and he said, and listen, the prophets spoke of you long ago, and that's really the situation we find ourselves here. I mean, it's a terrifying text to consider. It, it really is. that there's a, there's a type of hypocritical worship that is not pleasing in the sight of God. It's worthless. 
You get out of bed every Saturday, and you do your thing. Jews Saturday, you Sunday, right? And, and, and you just do all these things, and you think you're like fooling God. You're not fooling God. You might be fooling others, but you're not fooling Him. Your external lip service does not, does not bring cleanliness to the heart. It's actually at odds with what's going on at your heart. Freshly washed hands, right, contradicts their unwashed hearts. That's really what Jesus is saying. And, and how often that can happen. This brings sorrow and distress for Christ. I, I think when we read this woe, and there's six of them, we've we got to make sure that we understand, yes, a woe is, is judgment. There is judgment absolutely implied in this. It's, it's, it's a combination, though, of righteous indignation. And, and then I guess I would say, but it's expressing pity in a way that's, that's through irony. And that's what he's going to do over the next six woes. If you just listen to him, he's saying the same thing over and over and over. Essentially, he's kicking at the darkness, hoping it will start to bleed light, hoping that you would start to say, I don't need to worry about washing my hand. I need to be washed. I need to be clean. I need help outside of me. And so that's what he launches into. Look at verse 42. And here he goes with his, his woes. But woe to you, Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb. You'd think that'd be applauded, right? You're generous. You're so worried about making sure obeying the law. You're doing above and beyond the law because that even wasn't commanded in the law, this rue and this herb. Although they were supposed to definitely be tithers. They were supposed to set aside the best for God. But then he says, and you neglect justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he's not saying you shouldn't have been generous towards the things of God. But he's saying, but you're doing that and you think that I'm, I'm pleased while you're walking over people who are suffering to make sure that you get the offering in on time. Woe to you. I mean, it's clear that Jesus is condemning, ultimately, their priority reversing. God didn't need their spices. He created the spices. He's saying, yeah, give them. Why? Because, well, there's a whole list of reasons as to why in the Old Testament they were commanded to do these things. Ultimately to be set apart because God wanted to bless Israel so that Israel would be a blessing to the nations. And they had gotten off track. And they started to make this thing something it was never meant to be. Jesus boils it all down. He says, you want to figure it out? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, they think they're loving God, but Jesus is saying, how does this love your neighbor? You're, you're neglecting justice. You're, you're not pleasing to my father. See, see, the Old Testament law instructed the people of Israel to set aside a tenth of their produce, right? In order to provide for both the priesthood, financially, also, but also for the vulnerable. And so they think, if we just do this, then we don't actually have to be generous outside of 10%. Right? We can just walk past the homeless, make sure that we give to the church, and the church can take care of the homeless people. We don't need to worry about them. Check the box. And Jesus says, woe, woe to you. Woe to you. I mean, on, on the face, 
if you just look at it, it kind of seems like a good thing, something we ought not neglect. I mean, most pastors would be really happy to have a church filled with people that are giving as liberally as the Pharisees. They'd be thrilled. And I think that you got to be really careful here because you could be like, yeah. But he's not saying don't give. Don't miss that. Because, yeah, those stupid people giving. No, he says give. But he says don't neglect the other stuff. See, you can give and not love, but you cannot love and not give. Period. So it'd be a real mistake. Here's the real mistake, by the way. Let me just give you a caution right now. It's real easy to want to just shove a little elbow to your neighbor and say, yeah, get them, pastor. Oh, I know churches like that. Well, if you say that, I mean, you might be that. I'm not saying you're a Pharisee because that's a particular thing, but you might have a religious heart like one. And I guess Jesus is saying to all of us, woe. Woe to you. It's time for us to, to slow down and say, okay, Lord, open me up. Show me where I might be adrift. And then let the mercy of God just salve the wound so that we can have a heart that's lined with him. The problem is, is that they're regular giving in order to earn. That's really what's going on here. The approval of man, right? The applause. Oh, he's so generous. But, but he doesn't want to really honor God. He wants to be God. She wants to be God. Their external giving didn't match their inward stinginess. That's really what's going on, right? Um, they were not giving love and justice to the fatherless, to the stranger, to the widow, which in, in turn makes their giving worthless. It's worth nothing. God doesn't need your pocket change. He desires all of you. I, I remember hearing often, like, so I have a conversation with someone about finances and different things because the Lord's really working in this person's heart, and they're like, so, so I need to give 10%. I'm not going to get into that. And I was like, well, let's take 10 dimes. We lay them on. If you put one, that's God's. The other nine are mine, right? No. If you've ever been taught that, you've been taught wrong. All 10 dimes are God's, and you're called to be a steward of it. You know, you, you can't just say, I love the city of Greensburg. I'm just not going to give any of my treasure to help reach them. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense. You're like, oh, finally, it took two years to get into preaching money. I'm just trying to preach the text. I'm just trying to preach the text, right? And, and by the way, generosity, if you're like, yeah, this church just wanted money, and I know you don't believe that, give to another church then. Give generously to something else that God's doing that, that really is putting forth the gospel and loving neighbor. I'm I'm not here to check on what you're giving. But, but you have to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm seeking to honor you, to obey you, to love you. My heart matches my exterior. That's what we're aiming for. And he says, woe to you. Why? Well, because essentially, here's the deal. Gospel generosity is all about giving from what you've received. If you get that, everything else becomes easy. And what did you receive from God? Everything. It's his. It's not mine. That's not my house at, on Sydney Street. That's God's house. And so I get to open it up and I get to be generous with the things he's given me. Why? Because you're a good guy, Scott? No, because God rescued a greedy bugger like me. And he has started to just work in my heart to where I want to align. I want to be more like my father. 
I want to be like him. And he's generous. Why? Because he gives all. How do we see that? We see that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's just the first one. we got five more to go. So let's keep rocking and rolling. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplace. We don't, we don't get this, by the way, because there is no best seat here, right? I mean, you try to stay out of where the sun's pounding you in the eye, right? Everybody likes the end seats, which I don't even understand at all, because you're just getting up all the time. Now, I understand for some folks, you got to do that, right? You got to do that. You got to take the end seat. You need that leg out. I was always that guy, right? There's no best seat here, not, not the way Jesus is talking about. This seat in the synagogue would have been up front, and if you could imagine, there would be people up here right now, and they'd be looking at you. I don't know what their faces look like, but my guess is pretty smug, right? And they're, they're, they're probably staring at you. We know about you. You, oh, Russ, you kept that rue. You didn't bring that rue, buddy. You didn't tie that golf ball this week. Jesus is condemning their ego-driven leadership. The Pharisees love to be seen by all. In all their religious finery, with their big hats. What do they have under those things? I have no clue. They they desire prominence. They desire pats on the back. And and it, it shows that they're all show and no substance. They want everybody just to be like, man, did you see, you know, Jimmy today? Wow. They love it. And it's like, do you even understand? You have an audience of one. Aim to please him. And that's what Jesus is getting to. I mean, consider for a moment the irony of the phrase celebrity pastor. You get to be chief shepherd. Not really. That's Jesus. You get to be the guy who gets to be in the muck and the mire, rescuing sheep from all the things, plucking ticks off. You're going to smell Right, but celebrity pastor or or all star worship leaders, I don't even understand that. Or you might be like, yeah, how about the guy or the gal who's at the small group and every story is about how awesome they are? This is in all of us. It's it's in all of us. Someone who posts self-righteous stuff all over Facebook to get likes and amens from everybody just like them. Get them. You've never changed anyone's mind by doing that, by the way. Oh, yes, I did. You really didn't. They, they convey a message, that type of hypocrisy. They convey a message to come to Jesus and be awesome like me. That's the message. That's really what they're saying. If it's not happening, if you're not as awesome as me, then it's because you're not following the 99 plans that I have given you to be awesome. Go back to the beginning, figure it out, right? It's really a false gospel of self-help. That's really what it is. And it's about you. It's, It's about you. But true religion is about getting smaller in the sight of God. It's about shrinking, Right? John the Baptist says, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He's the Lamb of God. He's the one. It wasn't about him. John the Baptist is losing disciples and he's excited because they're gone with the one he's pointing to. You, you, you want to know if you're growing in grace. How small do you get to serve the least of these that no one else sees and they can't pay you back? It's easy to want to serve people who will invite you over for a fine dinner. 
And, and, and invite me over for fine dinners. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is if the only people you serve are the bright, shiny, happy people so that you can hear, well done, awesome dude, woe to you. Woe to me. The, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1.10 says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? You all have to ask that. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, listen to what he says, I would not be a servant of Christ. Every day you wake up, you're going to need to take that desire to be loved and appreciated and desired by other people to the altar and kill it. Paul goes on in Galatians 2.20, he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who now lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I'm dead. That's what he's saying. Meaning, the, the heart that wants me to be impressive so you'll like me, kill it. Holy Spirit, kill it. Put it back on the cross where it belongs. And give me a pure heart that longs to just do what is, a, what is so pleasing in your sight. Which is what? Loving you and loving others. Well, it might not get you applause. It won't get you applause. It won't. It'll get you in a dinner like this. It really will. You're like, well, I've never had that. Take me to dinner with you. <laughs> Invite your friends. But then I'd like to say, I don't always do that either because I'm a coward too. I've been in dinners where I knew I needed to say something, and I didn't say something because I really wanted them to like me. None of us have arrived. The temptation to live for applause of others is just common to everyone in this room. We love to be worshipped. You're like, no, you really do. I do. We do. Apart from God's grace, apart from His Spirit at work in our lives, that's what we want. We want praise. Now, we don't say it like that, but this is, I think, specifically very tempting and potent for religious leaders of all shapes and sizes. We just, we just miss it. Jesus knew this. That's why he said in John 5, 44, he said, how can you even believe? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? How can you believe? You're so worried about what everyone around you think, you don't even think about living in a way that might glorify your father. You want to glorify yourself. And, and he's lighting them up. But man, when I read this this week, I didn't feel like, go get him. I felt like, oh, God, help. Oh, God, help. It's no wonder why Jesus is so grieved by it all. They are, they, we, oh, apart from his grace, we're just glory whoring. That's really what it is, because all this keeps them from worshiping the one true God, and it keeps them desiring worship for themselves, and he's just not pleased. Let's, my prayer all week is, let's, God, help us to not live for the applause of others. Help us not to. All the while, Lord, help us to live honestly before you and, and, and vulnerable with one another. Some of my favorite people are messy people. You know why? Because they don't even have the capacity to put on a show. They can't even put on a mask. It just takes too much energy. And, and, they're, and they're not even trying to be vulnerable. They just can't help it. 
they live right on the surface with all their hurt and with all, but we have been conditioned by this world to never show what we're working with. We've been conditioned to never just open up and say, you know, someone's, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good, brother. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. How was your week? I mean, it was good, except I had, you know, a couple over on the back nine. Ugh. And my favorite team lost on Saturday. I got to tell you, I get, a, I get that. I can't stand that kind of conversation. I can't, you can't always get into it. I have to have them. I have them before Sunday. I don't ever know what to do before Sunday service because I don't want to get into a real conversation because I got to preach. And I know if your life blows up right now, I can't think. So save for blowing up after service. <laughs> and I'm all yours. But we just, this should be the place where the most vulnerable Missional community groups, they're going to start up this fall, and they're going to, we're going to have three, God willing, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Do me a favor and pick a day, mark it, black it out on your calendar, and say, that's my group, and then be there. And you're like, well, yeah, but I don't know if I like those people. It's not always about you, but you need those people, and those people need you. And, but here's my deal. Don't go in there wearing a bunch of masks. You're... It's the most sad thing when I hear someone say, here's what's going on in my life. And for seven years, I didn't know you've been struggling with cancer for three years. I didn't know your life and your marriage was on the rocks. And you're just telling me today, why? Well, I'll tell you why. You were worried about what people would think. It's just not confusing. Well, I didn't want to burden them. I know that sounds nice, but that's not real. You, you, you just didn't want to look like you didn't have it all together. Oh, the world doesn't need more plastic. I got to move on. Be vulnerable before the Lord. And once you get that figured out, you, you'll be vulnerable with one another. You can't be vulnerable with everyone. That's foolishness. But you better have a handful of people you can. Or I don't know how you ever live this life. Woe to you, verse 44. I know, this is a heavy one. This is why we didn't do this for the outdoor service. Could you imagine? <laughs> Woe to you, verse 44, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. <sighs> what is Jesus saying here? He's saying your hypocrisy, Pharisees, is not just destroying you. It's actually destroying the people around you. It spreads like gangrene. That's really what he's saying. See, graves that, that were filled with the remains of the dead, they would mark big time. Because if a Jew came near that site, they would be unclean. And then they'd have to go through this big ordeal to make sure that they could be ceremonially clean again. So he, listen to what Jesus is saying. You're like that. Only you're unmarked. And everyone comes around you and you make them unclean. I mean, these guys think they are clean. And not only do they think they are clean, they think they make everyone around them, what? Clean. And Jesus is saying, no, you're like an unmarked grave. They don't even know you're making them unclean and they stumble towards your way and they were better off had they not met you. That's what he's saying. Woe to you. Woe to you. <laughs> they weren't ritual purity. They were sources of spiritual contamination. 
You're here to be here to help. You're not helping anybody. You're actually, you're the problem. Ugh. Well, this seems like a good time to break out the baklava and the coffee and talk about sports. I mean, dinner is going awesome, swimmingly well, right? Well, they could have been done. But then there's this guy. <laughs> Whew. You ever met this guy? I've been this guy. One of the lawyers answered and said, uh, teacher, <laughs> wonder how he said it. Teacher, in, in saying these things, you insult us also. Now, this is the time where you just hear the, that redneck fellow come out. Well, here's your sign. Yeah, he is. But Jesus spools him up. This guy wanted to play whack-a-mole and Jesus didn't miss. So the, the dinner party goes on. I mean, I can imagine you could hear a pin drop after those first three woes. Oh, and let's not forget the cop. But this guy says that? And so he says, okay, in case I was not clear. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. <laughs> uh, they were to lawyers. Uh, don't, don't think Jerry Maguire, uh, not Jerry Maguire, what's the, the Lincoln lawyer? That's on Amazon Prime right now, right? Don't think that. Think Bible scholar. Think theologian. Experts in the law. Experts in the Torah. Experts in the first five books of the Bible. These are the guys that you go to and you're saying, help me make sense of this so that I can love God with my heart, soul, mind, spirit, all these things, and love my neighbors as, my, as, as myself. Help me. And he's saying, but you actually load them down. You don't help them at all. You're, you don't teach in a way that points to my holiness and my goodness in a way that, that relieves anybody of anything. You add more burden to their already burdened lives. Instead of helping people understand and live out the blessings of the law of how to walk with God, how to enjoy his blessings, they, they wouldn't lift a finger to help. They just looked at him, and, and they burdened him. They just burdened him. You ever, ever been there? You go to someone, life's already hard enough. And now you got someone coming over to be a blessing, and, and they ask you foolish things. I remember Jesse and I losing a baby, and... Someone saying, the day we lost it, Jess just had surgery, lost half of her lady parts, and this person said, do you have any sin in your life? I'm about to. I'm about to. And we're going to add murder to my list. So we asked him politely to leave, and it was a miracle that I didn't just, anyway. God's people are to be a, such a blessing. We're to lift burdens. And we're to point people towards the burden lifter. We're not to, are you reading your Bibles four times a day? How about your prayer? What's your prayer life like? Oh, you're anxious? Do you consider the lilies? <laughs> That's all law. You're not lifting any burdens. You're adding burdens. Now they not only have a wrecked life, they feel guilty because they're not living up to the standard of Christianity that you think they should be living up to. And you're just, 
You're crushing people. And you don't even, you may not even mean to. But it just goes to show what you don't even understand. That no matter how good you do things, sometimes life don't work out the way you think it should. And you think God's punishing you. If you're in Christ, all the punishment's been on Christ. On the cross, there's none reserved for you. There is no more wrath. Instead, open up your ears, open up your hearts, make them a meal, pray with them, weep with them, be with them. And I got to tell you, I, I struggle to preach this sermon here sometimes because I see you guys and I see the way you love. I'm so thankful. I, I hear story after story of you guys just showing up to people when their lives are wrecked and you just love them. I'm so, I'm so thankful for what God's doing in this church. But that's not most people's experience. Jesus is so much better than the Pharisees. That's the understatement of a lifetime. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, he says, come to me. Hear the sweet invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. He's not talking about your nine-to-five job or your nine-to-nine job. He's talking about laboring before God. He says, come to me. I'll give you rest. And, and, and then he says, take my yoke upon you. That sounds like work. He says, oh, come on. Come. Come learn with me. I'm going to carry it. I'm going to give you some of the weight, but only what you can bear. I can only bear an ounce. That's all I'll give you. I'll take the rest. And then he, he says this, I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. What a beautiful promise. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden's light. It's a beautiful invitation for people who are loaded down with the traditions and the additions of lawyers and Pharisees to come and find sweet rest. Not a lecture. Not a lecture. Well, Jesus continues. We're going to tackle 47 through 51, right? Because we've got to get to the grace. <laughs> we've got to run there now. He says, Woe to you, for you, lawyers, you build the tombs of the prophets whom your father killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also with the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. And, and this generation is that generation, not this generation. Pretty important to understand that. I think it's pretty obvious, though. Although people love to bring that in and say, that's about America. It's not about America. It's about that generation. Essentially, though, what's happening here is Jesus is showing them once again, your lips don't match your lives. You build altars you build altars for the prophets who came and spoke a word of condemnation and judgment to your people. Your people killed them. You build altars and everyone says, oh, you're showing honor. No, you're just finishing the job because you didn't actually heed the word of the prophet, which shows you would have killed them too. 
Oh, and by the way, fast forward, you're going to kill me. Me being Jesus in that sense. I'm not Jesus. Jesus is saying, he's going to prove your teaching, your altar building is just another facade because you're going to have me executed. You can't stand God. Here God is in the flesh, in Christ, incarnate, full of grace and full of truth, and they will have him murdered. Why? Because they will not repent. They will not. They think they're the good guys. And they miss the point. There are no good guys. There are no good girls. There are only those who are sinners who have all fallen short of the glory of God and have offended God greatly. The only good guy is Jesus. And, and, and here they are. They're, they're sinners, but they don't see themselves as sinners. They're in need of a Savior they're, they're rebels. They need redemption, but they think they have the key to salvation, and they don't. The key to salvation is standing right before them, and they will not open their eyes. They cannot open their eyes. From the beginning to the end, wicked people are out to kill God's messengers. When, when I hear people say, I just don't understand why this culture is so hostile towards Christians, which I'm not even sure that's even true. I've seen hostile towards Christians. I'm just like, why are you surprised? They killed your Savior. Why would they think, why would you think the followers are going to get all the world to just say, you guys are awesome, love you. And yet we live in a way so that we can get that and we miss the point. You're getting the applause of man. Oh, you're so enlightened the way you guys are just so cool and you got the tat or whatever and you say you love Jesus. Listen, you want to live dangerous? Start dropping the J word. Not vague God. Not, not the enlightened spirituality of the world with some spirit sprinkles on it. Start telling people that you know and that you love that Jesus Christ died to save sinners just like you and me. And he is a good savior. You should definitely trust and believe in him. Turn from your wicked ways and find life. I don't think you say that maybe on the first date. Right? But you got to get there. Or the question becomes for you is, do, do you believe that message? Right? Here soon, we're all going to be talking about the Steelers. Mark it. It's going to happen. They're going to be in late trove, and everybody's going to be saying, did you see this guy? Did you see that guy? Because you're talking about what you're passionate about. And I'm just saying, Lord, make us passionate about you. So much so that we're not worried if a Cleveland fan's around. <laughs> God, help us. Because here's the deal. They are out to kill God's messengers because those messengers speak of a truth that they cannot stand. They speak of a light that they don't want. They run back towards the darkness. And, and here's the deal. They are sinners in need of salvation. A salvation they can't perform. That's what they miss. That's what they miss. They're trying to save themselves. They can't do it. They need a rescuer, not more rules. Is that you? Do you just add more rules to your life with God? If so, you just need a better vision of Christ because the rest takes care of itself. So he goes on in verse 52. He goes, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. I mean, think about what's being said here. They were to labor with joy for, for God's people. 
They were to point them towards God. They were to walk with them. They were to work hard to teach them, to instruct them, to correct them, to remove all obstacles that would clutter anything into the path of them having a blessed relationship with God. But through their tainted teaching, through their tainted living, these law experts were not clearing the path. As a matter of fact, they were putting roadblocks up, and they had walled themselves in. And that's what happens when you try to do a hypocritical religion. You know you're a hypocrite. And so your, your friend group gets smaller and smaller until it's about people just like you. And now it's an echo chamber. Well, Jesus leaves. And let's see how they respond. As he went away from there, verse 53 and 54, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. <laughs> Gosh. This is no doubt a dinner that some, they're not going to forget this one for a minute. They're not going to, I mean, this is bad. Jesus just burst the bubble of these guys. He exposed them to the light of day. However, instead of hearing this very hard message from Jesus and in remorse and in response and repentance saying, well, then what's the way? And Jesus would kindly say, I am the way. I am the life. No one's going to get to the Father except through me. Follow me, guys. Let's go. I've prepared a meal, a meal you don't know about. Follow me. They, they don't. They become livid and they prove the truth of Jesus' message. Well, what's the point? Here's the point. I got one. Hypocritical religion leads to an empty religiosity that ultimately leads people astray and away from God. Okay, here's the deal. Many people despise Christianity because they have all, listen, known arrogant, self-righteous, judgmental people claiming to be Christians who polish the outside of the cup and the inside are just, there's no love of God and there's no love of anyone around them. R religious people it, work very hard to avoid sinners because they think they'll be infected. I mean, think about this, right? As if sin is something you can catch. Now, there might be wisdom why you might avoid certain people and certain things if it's a temptation. Like if you've struggled with alcohol or you've struggled with... Don't go to the bar, right? That's wisdom. But if you're like, no, those scum out there, they watch R-rated films. I know this one girl, she watched Barbie, right? Like, I'm just like, are you for real? Are, are, are you absolutely for real? I can't believe that you're avoiding people in a culture doing what they're called. I mean, they're, fish don't know they're wet. They're sinners by nature and by choice. And you're worried about whether they're going to watch Barbie? I, I, I don't understand it. And you, do, you don't help them. You avoid them, and you do little more than yell at them to get their act together and start shaping up and start being moral. And here's the deal. They come to the church, and they do, but guess what? They're still dead in their sins. But they don't watch Barbie. Well, whoop de do. They'll go to hell not knowing good news, but never have watching Barbie. This, this, this is, that is not the way of Christ. That is not good news. 
Behavioral modification apart from the transformation of the heart, apart from being born again, apart from regeneration. You're crazy to just yell moral law at people and expect that they do it. And when they do it, you say, good job. But they're not loving God. They're wanting you to love them. And so they do it. Why? Because they know you won't love me unless I act right. We can't, we can't do this. It's so easy to want to do it because we love comfort. And we don't like to have people be messy. And ultimately, you know what it comes down to? We don't trust God's people with the Spirit to work in their lives. That's really what it comes down to. Where's the grace in the text? Look at verse 41. It's there. Oh, and it's shining like a beacon of hope. Sometimes it's hard to see it, but I think you see it in one second. You may have already seen it. Verse 41 says, but give alms to those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. Alms, um, love of the poor, love of justice, love, and poor in spirit. Not, Not just financially broke. He means poor in spirit. Love them from a heart that God has given you. You can't give what you haven't received. God gives, we receive, and then over the overflow and the abundance of our worship, now we can give from the heart. And he's saying, and if you do that, if you love somebody for no other reason than to love them, now you're giving from a pure heart because you wouldn't do it otherwise. You you wouldn't do it. Because you couldn't. This is what Jesus is talking about is inside out religion. Let me give you a heart that longs to obey, that longs to love me, that longs to love the people that are put in your life. I'll give you that heart. He gives people a grace-filled heart. And, and the Pharisees and religious people are trying to clean the heart up by doing good things, and what they realize they, they miss it. You can't. Even your good deeds are so askew. Why? Because you might be doing it for all sorts of reasons, but you're not doing it because it's coming from the heart. The gospel places the gift before the demand. Oh, get that. You'll be the freest people ever. Divine grace before human obedience. You just need to receive and believe and trust God to give you what He's called you to do. And He will. He will. If, If you're a believer... Get this, the change that happened in your life was brought about by the Holy Spirit of God. He washed the inside of the cup. Not you, not your rules, not your regulation, not your church attendance, not the amount of money that you have given, not about how many times you mowed your neighbor's lawn or any of those things. And all those things might be wonderful things, but if you're doing that so that you can be washed and clean before God, you are unclean. Woe to you. Woe to you. But man, if you're like, no, I have seen the beauty of God and I have said, oh God, I am a sinner. Help me. Save me. You're washed. I believe you. Change my life. Take up residency in me. Help me to walk with you. I need you. Boy, if you've said those words, you've said those words because the Holy Spirit has done profound work in your life. The Bible doesn't teach clean yourself up and come to Jesus. He says, come 
And the beauty is, he comes to you. Because you can never get to him. He comes to you and it, it teaches you to come with all your filth, all your shame, all your sin, and receive. Receive what? Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins, righteousness, love, mercy, grace. He gives himself to you. And the beauty of all of this, so much beauty to unpack here. But, but he says, later on he's going to say, you, you need a helper. You need a friend. You need, a, you need me. And you won't need to come to this temple anymore. I'm going to dwell in you, and you'll dwell in me. This is what it means to be in Christ, to abide in him, and for him to abide in you. And so if you've ever done things that are pleasing to God, it's because God Almighty has dwelled in you and has brought about a faithful, obedient heart. And so each day we just say, Lord, give me the grace to follow you, to believe you, to trust you, to love you, and to love my neighbors as myself. Because if it's left up to me, it's not going to happen. Oh, God, help me. This is the life of a Christian. The, the church is to be a healing haven for the sick, the sin sick of this world. They should come and not get loaded down with more roles. They should get... Relief saying, go to Christ who obeyed all the rules perfectly. Find life in him. I'm out of time. And I wish I weren't. But we'll just press all that over to next week. And I won't have to write as much. <laughs> I'm going to finish with, with a word of grace to you. Christ did not die and rise potentially for us. As, as if we believe enough, if we repent enough, if we improve enough, then we can have life with God. That's not the gospel. The only enough is Jesus Christ. And what I want you to hear today is he's enough. He's enough. For whatever you're carrying, for whatever weight you're carrying, he's enough. Go to him. Find sweet rest. Find sweet peace. Find Christ is sufficient for all that your burdens are. And enjoy him. Because here's the thing. You're in Christ. Listen. And even if you're not in Christ, here's what you need to hear. He loves you. He died for you while you were weak, while you were ungodly. He died for you. And so if he died for you while you were an enemy warring against him, now that you're a son or daughter of the living God because he has rescued you from yourself and from Satan and from sin and from his wrath, how much more would he not love you? He loves you infinitely more than you could ever imagine. Receive his love fresh today. Receive his love fresh today. And all the woes go away because he is the one who just takes them upon himself. And he becomes sin in your place so that you can receive righteousness, love, mercy, and grace for the rest of your existence. And if you're in Christ, listen, you exist forever in his love. In his love.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ you've made a way for us to be clean. We had no hope of ever cleaning the inside of the cup. And you have done that by the blood of Christ. You have done that by living the life we could never live, Jesus. You obeyed the Father perfectly. Had we been living in that time, we would have heard many woes too. And you have stepped into the gap. You have received the punishment our sins and our rebellion deserve. You have become sin in our place, although you had never sinned, so that sinners like us might be able to receive forgiveness, love, adoption into the family so that we can be in you and you can be in us and there's no thing nor no one who could ever separate us from the love of the Father. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us today, right now, know that there is no greater place to be than in you because in you is a place of all grace, all mercy, all love, all the time. And even in your discipline, it is to, to bring us back to the heart of God. And so, Lord, if there's anything in us that is just astray from your heart, Lord, I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would just show us that your love would bring about repentance in our lives and that we would just continue to come to you confessing. And as we confess the things that are not pleasing to you, that you would just meet us with more mercy and more grace because it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Father, we thank you for doing all things. We thank you for washing us. We thank you for justifying us. We thank you that this is all a work of grace by you. And we simply believe. God, help us in any area of unbelief. And help us to rest and know that the work of Christ is finished. It really is. And, and all we do is live in that finished work. God, help us to be a vessel that tells the world of the great news of Jesus Christ. We ask in your beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.